Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we can gather in your house and that we can worship you, that we can, that we have, that we have your word available to us in so many different translations and resources available to study and understand your word, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you have preserved your word, and we thank you that your word is understandable and knowable, and that you are knowable. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we, as we dive back in, jump back into Jonah today. I pray that you would guide our conversation and our hearts and that we would see what you would have for us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. So, by way of recap, we are in week two of one of our observation of Jonah. Um, we're spending the next few weeks diving in, jumping in, looking at, uh, you know, workshopping through observation, interpretation, application of Jonah 1, seeing what's there, you, you know, putting into practice the tools that we've learned, the skills that we've learned over the last three or so months of studying and learning inductive Bible study and how to do it, how to how to get the most out of a text that we can. You know, and we got through, you know, we looked at different translations. There's, you know, each one of you has a different translation in front of them. Um, we looked at what does the translate, you know, are there, are there significant differences in translation in Jonah 1? And we, we determined that, you know, there's really no significant difference in how different translations translate the text, which, which on one hand may seem kind of boring, but on another hand, like that's that's very reassuring. You know, it tells us that you know the words that are on the page. There's not really any any great debate, any great controversy over how these words should be rendered. So, these words are fairly understandable on their face. Then we, we spent a lot of time asking the, you know, learning to ask, you know, what are the right questions of the text? There were a lot of questions that we could ask of this text. Um, we talked about the context and the recipients, um, and the recipient's circumstances. We talked about, you know, questions of relationship, you know, what, what happened before, and being that this is the first chapter of the book, nothing happened before. But we also talked about what came next. And in talking about what's coming next, there were some interesting questions that came up. The big one, you know, this is Jonah is a prophet of the Lord under the Old Covenant. A covenant made with Israel, and yet, why is the Lord sending a prophet of the old covenant to a people with whom the covenant was never made, warning them about what would happen? And then not only do we see, we see Jonah's rebellion, but we see him eventually go to Nineveh. He preaches what the Lord tells him to preach, and they repent and the Lord staves his judgment. 
So it begs the question, why is a salvation of sorts, why is a reprieve of judgment being offered to somebody who's not part of the covenant? And not just to people who aren't part of the covenant, but why is it being given to Israel's mortal foes at that time, the people who were oppressing Israel? That was, a, that was probably the big question that we kept coming back. And you know, Phil had, had pointed out that later in, I think it might have been in three... Oh, I can't. Oh, I can't remember what it was he was referencing. But it was essentially the Lord telling Jonah, salvation is mine to offer. So it begs the question, or at least we start to see kind of a foreshadowing that, huh, maybe there's something bigger in store for the nations in the future. We're not told anything more. You know, there's no grand prophetic revelation that, oh yeah, this is what's coming. But there's just kind of the inkling that maybe there, maybe deliverance Maybe there's a deliverance available for more than just the Jews. So it leaves that question hanging. That was probably one of the big questions of the text that we come to. We talked about why did the author write it? We don't know who wrote it. We know who it's about, but we don't know who wrote it. And like I said, the big picture questions. Why is a prophet of the Lord being sent to not Israel. Which then leads us to where we're picking up today. Are there in the text that we have, are there any type of significant terms within the, within the text of Jonah 1? You know, are there any, you know, we talked about, like I said, by way of refreshment a number of months ago, are there any type of contextually crucial terms? You know, words or phrases that carry, that seem to carry the meaning of this particular passage. You know, are there theologically profound terms? You know, things that, okay, there's some theological weight up behind this word or this phrase. Are there any words that would seem to be historically peculiar? You know, words that we may not know today, but maybe in the time that it was written, had some type of meaning? Are there some type of um, uncertain terms? You know, and to some extent, we already asked this question when we were comparing translations and seeing, you know, are there words that are translated differently that maybe there's some type of controversy or we don't completely understand what's available or, or what's on the page? But then are there also figurative or symbolic terms present? Or is this a pretty literalistic, straightforward 
you know, we talked about the context and the type of writing that this is. This is narrative. While Jonah is a prophetic book, it's one of the minor prophets, at least this section of Jonah is narrative. So we wouldn't necessarily expect to see a whole lot of figurative or symbolic speech in narrative. That's not saying that it can't be there, but we wouldn't expect to see it there. So are there any types of non-routine words or phrases that seem to carry the meaning in this text? Or are there any any ideas? Ken? Sorry, were you asking specifically on one of those points or any of the above? Any of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, any of them. Well, I mean, if we're looking at some of the, the, the terms that are repeated often that seem to have weight, you, we look at the presence of the Lord. Okay. Um, hurled. Uh, I just made a connection here just now between um, God said to, to Nineveh, call out against Nineveh. And then when the, in verse 6, when the sailors came to Jonah, he's asleep, he said, Arise, call out to your God. I'm not sure if that's the same Hebrew word or not, uh, but um, it is. I just, I just looked it up. It is the same word, so that's kind of interesting. Um, so, and then fear shows up several times. Okay. So, <clears throat> those would be, seem to be contextually significant terms. Call out would be theologically profound. There's an implication of preaching and things that would go on calling out against the city. Um, Fear would be a contextually crucial. The presence of the Lord, Mm -hmm. presence of God could be more than one. I mean, it could be a contextually crucial, but it could also be, there could be some theological significance there as well. Yes. Hurling. Yeah, because one of the way that we identify significant terms, repetition. Repetition is a pretty good way to identify that, oh, there's, there's maybe some type of meaning here because the author's repeating words, phrases, or ideas. So that could be a historically particular, you know, sure, Nineveh, Tarshish, that can be a historically particular, you know, and we roughly know because of archaeology and things where Nineveh was located, um, but where was Tarshish? We're given some context that, you know, Tarshish is not close to Nineveh. Um, So, yeah, So seeing that, oh, God said go here, and then we see, oh, so Jonah's going over here, that can, that historically particular just location term, you know, location words can tell us, oh, Jonah was in rebellion. A prophet of God was in rebellion against open rebellion. I mean, at least at least to the extent that his rebellion was preserved on, on page for, for posterity. So yeah, that, that would be a very good historically particular term 
Because if we didn't understand where Tarshish was in relation to Nineveh, we might be tempted to say, oh, well, you know, Jonah got kind of close, but he didn't go exactly there. Like, no, he went opposite. So another historically is the con- historically peculiar is the concept of casting lots. Okay. To de- to de- determine whose fault this is, you know, there's particular historical context like that would strike us as ah, oh, that's not something we do today. We don't sure. figure out like, all right, let's 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 draw straws, see whose fault this trouble is. Who we got a flat tire? Whose fault is this? You know, we mm-hmm. don't do that, but this is how they did it, and yeah. God w- actually worked through that. Well, yeah. So the idea of casting lots was yeah, it's. We don't really understand it today as such, but this was, it was considered a way to determine what the will of the gods was. Of, you know, that, that the gods would intervene and would interfere and direct and would reveal to mankind what their will was through this seeming chance game, but it really wasn't chance. Yeah. So that, and through seeing that, we see that the, that the sailors who were there were maybe at least, you know, at a minimum, at least superstitious, as even, you know, modern sailors are. But, but we could see, you know, we, we could at least maybe get the understanding that, okay, these were these men at least feared the gods. They maybe, they maybe didn't fear or serve the God of Israel, but at least it, it maybe not even a healthy respect for the God of Israel, but at least like they're, the divine, you know, some type of deity is at work here. You know, we're going to die. Okay. There's also maybe the a context, a, this connection we see in verse seven, the idea that you know, evil has come upon us because someone did something bad. Okay, and we see that idea in present today, but to understanding the sailor, you know, to understanding their reaction, that could maybe be crucial to understanding why they decided, you know, they threw the lots because of this belief in that, you know, the belief in that connection that, okay, bad things are happening because somebody defied the gods. Okay. So what maybe do the, you know, well, that gets to interpretation, so I won't go there. So there's this, this idea of the presence of the Lord, of fear, of hurling, of calling out, of casting lots. Um, these things give us potential information about what's going on here. Do we see, you know, as we kind of, you know, we've, so we've identified some significant terms you know, words, phrases, and ideas that we may want to focus on as we move deeper into our study of Jonah, especially when we get into interpretation. You know, when we get into interpretation next week, a lot of our interpretation 
of what does this passage mean is going to be drawn from what are the significant things. You know, meaning is not typically drawn from things that aren't significant. So we've identified these significant things. Um, well, something else that also showed, shows up repeatedly then is fleeing. You know, the, and fleeing shows up in connection to the presence of God, in the presence of the Lord. So that, that may be something that we want to remember that not only does fleeing show up, but what seems to be connected to this idea of fleeing or running away. The next step that we want to look at, we want to zoom out a little bit from just what are, what are specific words or phrases or ideas that are on the page. But how is Jonah chapter 1, how is this unit of text constructed? You know, what, what, type of, what type of writing is the book of Jonah as a whole? I mean, just, just in the organization of Scripture, where does the book of Jonah fall? Like, what type of grouping does Jonah typically fall in? Or is, how is he grouped? He's grouped as one of the minor prophets. In fact, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, or in, the, in the Jewish organization of Scriptures, there isn't even a distinction between the twelve minor prophets. They're just lumped together into one book called the Twelve. They're, they're considered, so it's, we're looking at prophetic literature, okay? But when we, when we zoom into our text, what type of writing is Jonah chapter 1? So Jonah on the whole is prophetic literature, but is chapter 1 prophetic? So it's narrative. So what, what could that particular literary feature tell us that we have narrative leading into prophecy? The context is pretty crucial to the prophecy that's going to be made. <laughs> you know, something in your eye? Okay, so, and while when we look at all of the prophets, you know, certainly, certainly context is going to be crucial, you know, what's going on, you know, why, why is this prophet being called to, to prophesy for or against a particular people is, is always important to understanding. There's a whole section of the, pro, of the, the, this particular prophetic literature that's just simply laying out the context. In fact, a lot of Jonah is narrative. You know, because we see, you know, chapter one is narrative. Then we get into chapter three, and chapter three is more narrative, and chapter four is... So there's a lot of Jonah that, while it's considered prophecy, you know, one of the prophets... A lot of Jonah is written in narrative form. You know, 
this happened, then this happened, then this person went here and said this and did this. It certainly reads a lot different than if you go, you know, you flip over to like the book of Nahum or Obadiah or these other minor prophets where it's like, oh yeah, this is prophecy after prophecy and oracle after oracle. Jonah's not written like that. So are there, are there any, t- knowing that this, where we're at here is just a narrative of just kind of telling a story of what happened, you know, who said what, what happened first, next, last, we're talking narrative. Are there any type of features in this text that can tell us what's happening? Is there repetition that happens? Are there words or phrases that are repeated? This ties in a little bit to what we just talked about when we're identifying significant terms. Talk about the escalation. Uh, okay. Something I was just noticing here is the escalation of the storm. Okay. You know, so it, it in verse four it starts out as a mighty tempest, which leads to the people being very exceedingly afraid in verse ten. Then in verse eleven, more and more tempestuous, <clears throat> and then in verse thirteen again, it grew more and more tempestuous against them. So there's really that escalation concept is just it's building. It's yeah. Is 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 a big storm. This, this is a big. This is a big storm. This is a big storm, and it's getting bigger. Yeah. And and certainly, and so that level of escalation, and that we see. But you know, and do we see a repetition though? So there's repetition. The storm is growing more and more tempestuous. Well, there's a certain. There's a certain repetition. The storm keeps getting worse. Then the storm kept getting worse. And then the storm was really bad. And it got worse. So there's repetition. But there's the escalation. Do we see the sailors... Do we see repetition in reaction to the storm? Fear. These are sailors. And in that particular part of the world where they're sailing is on the Mediterranean a part of the world that is known for having really bad storms on the sea. You know, we, this is not the only time that a storm on the Mediterranean shows up. We see it in the New Testament with, um, you know, with Paul getting shipwrecked on Malta. So shipwrecks and storms on this, on this part of the world happen with some degree of frequency. So and these, so these sailors are probably rather used to storms. So the fact that maybe this storm is escalating as much as it is maybe contributes to their fear of this storm isn't like one we've seen before. There's something bigger going on here. Are there, are there other types of literary features that we see? Do we see questions and answers? Do we, or do we see comparing and contrasting? 
There's definitely, you know, the sailors are asking Jonah questions. Who are you? What have you done? You know, and he answers yeah. truthfully. He's like, yep, it's my fault. Yeah. And that only adds to their fear. Well, and we see repetition in the hurling. You know, they start off by hurling things overboard, and they end with throwing a person overboard. So there's, there's repetition, but there's also a little bit of escalation there in the sailor's response of, hey, we're chucking stuff. We're, we're getting rid of stuff so that we survive. Hey, now we're going to start chucking people. But why do they chuck, why do they hurl Jonah overboard? <laughs> Jonah told them to, throw me overboard. So there, there's maybe something there if we go back to like significant words, phrases, ideas. You know, you'd, maybe that doesn't. Maybe that's a f- something in the flow of the text. You're like, you know, I wouldn't necessarily expect that. Jonah saying, "Yeah, throw me overboard." What, Jonah? You be crazy. And then they say, "Okay." Boom. Yeah. Which I think is telling a little bit because there's, you know, we talk about they're, they're superstitious. Right. Uh, you know, okay, we, historically, you know, a lot of times we don't think of sailors as like super ethical people, but there's, there are certain superstitions and you don't, you don't make innocent people walk the plank. You know, like the, the, you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> So that's why they're praying. They're like, ah, okay, we, we're, not, we're not supposed to do this. this is the one of the things that we do not do is throw innocent people overboard. Right. And yet. And so, yet here yeah. we're doing it. <clears throat> yeah, which, of course, Jonah's admitted that he's not innocent. Um, but he hasn't done things that, in their mind, would normally warrant throwing somebody overboard, walking the plank. So, yeah, yeah that's just kind of interesting. Are there any types of figures of speech or symbolic language that's used in the structure of the text? At kind of first glance, I don't necessarily see anything that's necessarily symbolic or figurative or euphemistic. Well, I, I would say the presence of the Lord is somewhat, I mean, we're obviously we're not talking about Jonah literally standing before physical being of God. Sure. And you, it's impossible to really run from the true presence of God because he's everywhere. Okay. So there's a sense in which that's, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm comfortable using the word symbolic, but um, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a sense of... Um, there's a word for it. I'm trying to think of it, but it's it's not, it's not talking about the literal presence. But there is an aspect where he is fleeing from the Lord in a way that we know is futile. But yeah, so I, I there's a word for it. I'm just not thinking of it. So if it's if we look at that as not you know 
God isn't literally standing in front of him saying, hey, Jonah, go here. And Jonah's like, yeah, I'm going over here to get away from you. As we know about the character and the, the characteristics of God, God's everywhere. We're not getting away from him. So there's, like you said, there's a certain futility in Jonah's action that maybe we're supposed to understand. Yeah, Jonah's doing this. <laughs> Silly Jonah. <laughs> You're not going to do this. But we're also, it's also conveying an idea of Jonah's rebellion. Jonah is outside the will of the Lord. Phil, you look like you have something. Well, I was going to mention that... Uh all through scripture, there's a call and a response. The call to Jonah was to go, and his response was, no, I'm not going. Yeah. It's very important to, to see that. And all the way through Jonah, you see that rebellion, but yet the Lord turns that around and uses it in further passages in the New Testament where Jesus refers to the prophet Jonah Sure. And there's a, there's a call there in Matthew about the call of Jonah and uh, his disobedience. Yeah, we see, I think that's something, you know, when we kind of look at the, con the, the bigger context of how does chapter 1 fit into Jonah as a whole, you know, we th it would be nice to think that, oh, hey, Jonah rebelled against God. He ran away. He didn't do what God told him to do. You know, God sends a storm. They chuck him over. He spends three days in a fish. We think, we would like to think that Jonah changes his tune a little bit and has a bit of a change of heart after three days in a fish. And yet, as we read through the rest of Jonah, we find out that, ah, I don't know how much Jonah's really moved off of where he was in the beginning. He did what God told him to do. But we don't necessarily, I don't think the text really gives us the impression that this was a, I'm doing this joyfully. Yes, Lord, you're telling me to do this. Absolutely, I love doing what you're telling me to do. No, his response to God is, see God, this is why I didn't want to go because I know who you are, and I want them to burn. <laughs> like, so even at the end, like, we see Jonah obeyed and that he did what he was told to do, but his heart is still very much rebellious. So there's, there's, a, there's something interesting there, like, yeah, as we move forward. Robin. So <laughs> when we first looked at this last week, we talked about the reason why Jonah wanted to run in the mm -hmm. other direction was fear. But sure. now we're seeing later in the book, it was possibly both fear and I don't like these people. I don't want them to be yeah. rescued. I, I don't want God to do anything good for them. Yeah. And maybe, so well, maybe yeah, maybe more than just fear. He had a, he despised them. Yeah. And maybe it was, we see fear, but it's, it's not fear of what the Assyrians are going to do to him. It's fear of, if I do this, God's going to spare his wrath, and I don't want that. Mm -hmm.
Because Jonah flat out said, I know, you know, Lord, I know you're abounding in mercy. And if they repent, you, you would relent. And I didn't want that. <laughs> Oof. You know, I think maybe there's something there when we get into the application part of this in a couple of weeks that... How many times do we see that in our own heart? Mm. How many times does that stop us from sharing the gospel? Because I want them to burn. Mm. But we'll chuck that in the filing cabinet for a couple of weeks. So... When we look at, at Jonah chapter 1, you know, when I, when I picked this text for us to go over, you know, it was, I chose this particular chapter because, like I said, most of us are probably familiar, in, you know, generally speaking, with the story of Jonah. We've all probably heard the story of Jonah from a pretty young age. Those of us who are old enough probably had the Jonah flannel graphs in Sunday school. Um, so this is not a story that we're unfamiliar with. So I wanted us to come at a familiar story with new eyes. But just because Jonah chapter 1 is how we've, you know, how we've divided up the chapters as we've seen sometimes in other texts that we've looked at, the chapter breaks aren't always great breaks. Sometimes the chapter breaks happen in the middle of a narrative. They happen in the middle of a thought stream. They happen in the middle of the flow of an argument. So sometimes chapter breaks or even verse breaks aren't great places for it. And we have to remember that you know, in the original texts, you know, that chapters and verses in the history of the Bible, chapters and verses are a relatively new introduction. Um, and they were put there solely to be able to re easier reference. Um, but what we have is our chapter and verse breaks really probably are only about five to 600 years old at best. Um, so in the, in, the, you know, in the manuscripts, there were no chapter and verse breaks. So as we look at this text, as, as we look at this particular narrative, does this appear to be one cohesive literary unit or does maybe this break down, are there maybe multiple units, could this break down a little bit differently to convey the meaning of the text? So and we see in, in our ESV text that there's some heading breaks at verse 6, you know, between verses 6 and 7, and then again between 16 and 17. Are those great breakdowns? 
should there be, should there be a breakdown at all? You know, or is this entire, you know, all 17 verses, is this one cohesive unit of text? Do we see any type of what we would call boundary features? You know, is there, are there, is there anything in the text at some point that says, hey, we're ending here and then we're moving on to something else? Like, as, for example, on Wednesday nights as we've been going through the book of, as we've been going over Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we see some distinct boundary features. So like words like, so now then, or therefore, or and, things that, or things that are ind indicating kind of a, somewhat of a shift in Paul's thought process or he's moving on to a slightly different line of argument. We see some features in the text that indicate that. Um, we've seen that as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday morning, that there are some words or phrases that seem to indicate, and sometimes there are some literary motifs that seem to indicate, oh, there's a change in something happening. A lot of times in Mark we see, and then they got on a boat. <laughs> that motif of getting on a boat often is set in Mark is setting the scene for a change, a change of topic, a change of location, a, or a change of scenery. So do we see anything in chapter 1 that would indicate that there are some boundary features. It could be. Or is, is maybe where, you know, 16 and 17, is there a boundary? You know, we have, because we have some scenery, you know, in chapter, in verse 1 through 16, they're on the boat. There's the storm going on, the finger pointing, whose fault is this? We're all going to die. In verse 16, they have just finished chucking Jonah overboard. Well, verse 17 shifts into, you know, it's like, hey, we're up here, verse 17, meanwhile, in the belly of the fish. <laughs> yeah, you just kind of picture that, like, deep-voiced narrator, like, you know, meanwhile. So maybe, so maybe in, as we're breaking this down, maybe verse 17, you know, 117 fits better with what's coming next in chapter 2, then it connects with what just happened in chapter 1. So, yeah, there could, that change in scenery, that change in location can be a pretty good indication of a boundary marker. 
because then you see in 2.1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. So there's that connection to 1.17 when we look at cohesion. 117 is maybe more cohesive with what's coming next in chapter 2. Well, let me ask you this. So, is everyone here using the ESV for the most part? I think probably most other translations break down the text with a heading between chapter, verses 6 and 7. Does that heading seem to make sense? Let me, I'm going to pull up a different... Chapter 1, 6 and 1, 7. So I'm looking here in the NET. The NET does not do a heading break between 6 and 7. Yeah, that's the one like extra heading in there that seems odd to me as far as <clears throat> what the ESV has put forward. Um, especially because it's continuing the dialogue. Right between Jonah and the sailors. So the, a, the HCSB doesn't have a heading breakdown there either. The American Standard Version and the Amplified do not. So the, the NAS does not have a heading break. And nor does the NIV. The NIV doesn't. Let's see. Yeah, there's New American right there. You've, you're pulling it up. Okay. Let's see what we... Paul from the trenches? Checked Holman. Holman doesn't break it down. Uh, the King James does not break it down. Interestingly enough, the King James, though, breaks down a heading between verse 11 and verse 12. So the King James, where it says, Then they said to him, What shall we do for... What shall we do for thee that the sea might calm unto us? For the sea was raged and tempestuous. And then they break it down in verse 12. Uh, they do a heading in 12 where Jonah then introduces the throw me into the fish or throw me into the sea. So... When we look at the narrative structure of chapter 1, maybe apart from the division, this, a division between verses 16 and 17, does it make sense to break down the text anywhere else? Or is this all one, one cohesive narrative? That's the NRSV, or that, that's the RSV. Okay, so they break it down. That's the RSV. 
Yeah, so they break it down the same way that the King James breaks it. Well, you said they break it down between 10 and 11? Interesting. So they break it, the RSV breaks it down even differently than the King James. Do any of those, does any of that make sense? Or does it make sense that we should read chapter 1 as one cohesive narrative? I lean towards the, it just seems like one, it's continuing of the story. I mean, you could... Yeah. You could put different headings for the different um, paragraphs, but it's still one story. Yeah. So as far as unit, as far as a unit breakdown, one through sixteen. I mean, so verse one is just kind of the introduction. So really, chapter, you know, verse two through sixteen. We're talking a pretty cohesive unit of text. So this really is what we're looking at. The meaning of this text is really going to be pulled out of, the, out of 2 through 16 because that's the unit we're looking at. All right, let me see. We're kind of, oh, we're a couple minutes over on time. But this also brings us to the end. So next week... We're going to take everything that we've looked at for the past two weeks of just what, what's here in the text for us. You know, what seems to be repeated? What's, um, are there significant words and phrases? The, the, you know, the coherent, the structure of the text. The big picture questions. Why would God send a prophet of Israel to not Israel? Why would why would God seem to care if an enemy of Israel perishes or not? Still kind of, still a really big question in the text. Um, so next week we're going to pick up on the, inter- we're going to pick up at interpretation. Now that we've seen what's there, now that we've identified what's significant in the text, where, where's the meaning going to be drawn from? Well, the next step is to, is to discern what the meaning actually is. You know, what would, this, what would this text mean? What did the author intend for this text to convey? What would the original recipients have understood this text to mean? Because you know, remember, we're, we're trying to discern... What would the text mean by the original author to the original recipients? Because it's not going to mean, this text is not going to mean anything different for us today because there's, there's one meaning in the text. So what it meant then is what it's going to mean now. Where the difference may lie is in how it's applied. Because we are looking at, look, this is a different covenant. This is old covenant versus new covenant. This is Israel. We're not Israel. Also, it seems to be the recipients of the prophetic message were the Assyrians. We're not the Assyrians. So, the application of the meaning may be different for us today, but the meaning is still going to be the meaning. So that's where we pick up next week.
and we'll be right back in Jonah 1 again. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had this morning as we've continued to dig into Jonah and to see what, what you would have us to see, that we, you know, to observe what's there in the text, what was preserved for us. And Father, again, we thank you that your word has been preserved for us and that your word is understandable and that we can know your good and perfect and holy word. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.